and take out, if you will, your Bibles and open them to John. I'm going to be looking at the first part of chapter 3. As you turn there, that I keep saying uh, that the movies we watch that really touch us, that really are memorable, they usually have a gospel theme, and that's so true of the movie The Matrix. If you've ever seen that movie, that actually groundbreaking movie, uh, I guess 15 or 20 years ago now, it's a movie that centers around this character called Neo, and he begins to realize, and you're on this journey with him, that the world he inhabits is not real. It's fake. Everything he thought was real is not. Everything he thought he knew was wrong. Everything he thought he was He wasn't. And I would put it to you that today in our text, that's exactly what happens to Nicodemus as he approaches Jesus. As he comes to Jesus at night, that he begins to understand as he talks to Jesus that everything he thought was certain, that he knew, was wrong. Everything he thought about himself, he was wrong about that. I invite you to turn with me and look at verse 1 in chapter 3. God's word says, Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. How can a man be born again when he is old, Nicodemus asked. Surely he cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born. Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless he is born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying that that you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from, or where you cannot tell where it comes from, or where it is going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and you do not understand these things? I tell you the truth, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I have spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. 
Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the desert, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what he has done has been done through God. Father, I pray that you will speak through me to your sheep, your people, your flock, your loved ones, your adopted sons and daughters. In Jesus' name, amen. To be honest, it's actually surprising that Nicodemus comes to Jesus. I hope you realize that. This is not the type of person that Jesus attracts. He did not attract, when he was in his earthly ministry, the religious elite. But if we reflect for a moment, we can understand that why John picked this as Jesus' first contact. It's really a perfect first contact for Jesus. Consider who Nicodemus was for a second. The text tells us that Nicodemus was a Pharisee in verse 1. A member of the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, the 70, also in verse 1. A great teacher in verse 10. In other words, from a religious perspective, Nicodemus had it all. From that perspective, he was the complete package. Nicodemus, if there was ever a person who you'd look at and say, spiritually, that person has it together, it would be somebody like Nicodemus. Why would he need to come and talk to Jesus? He had it all. He knew it all. He had it together. He had the perfect pedigree, didn't he? Yet, in spite of Nicodemus' achievements, in spite of his prominence, in spite of his education, his politics, his culture, even in spite of his religiosity, Nicodemus had something that he needed from Christ. And Jesus exposes that need right off the bat. I'd like us to examine together how Jesus challenges our perfect pedigrees. How Jesus challenges our preconceptions. Look with me at verse 1. Verse 1 informs us of two things. Nicodemus, like I said, is a member of the Sanhedrin, which was the Jewish ruling council. That was the, the, the political group that ruled 
Israel at the time. It was the Sanhedrin who judged Jesus and condemned him to death. It was the Sanhedrin that Peter and John stood in front of and gave witness to Christ. It was them that Sanhedrin said to Peter and John, you cannot, we're going to let you go, but you cannot speak of Jesus. They ordered, and they had the authority to do that. It was the Sanhedrin that Stephen gave his final defense of the faith before they stoned him to death. They judged him. Nicodemus had the power, but he also had the prestige. He was a Pharisee. One of the three Jewish sects at the time, the Essenes, the Sadducees, and the Pharisees. But the Pharisees, above all the others, were the ones that, that really placed a high value on the law and tried their best to live by the Mosaic Law. They tried. They were the most religiously meticulous of the Jews. They were known for their excessive adherence to the law to the point where Jesus, when talking on the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember, he says, okay, you want to get to heaven? You, you want to make it? You, you, you want to become righteous in God's eyes? You have to be more righteous than the Pharisees, he says. Your righteousness has to exceed the Pharisees. In other words, what he's telling the people is the Pharisees, you know, morally and ethically, they've got it together. They are, are doing a pretty good job. And you have to be even more perfect than they. Jesus actually puts the Pharisees up there pretty high. They were dutiful. They were law-abiding, moral, ethical. They were disciplined tithers, in other words. They helped the poor. They prayed a lot. Jesus mentions them praying on street corners, right? They went to temple. They went to church all the time, guys. They knew their scriptures backwards and forwards. They were even able to teach those scriptures. They were highly, highly religious. And that's exactly what Jesus challenges. The religiosity of these people. The religiosity of Nicodemus. Look at the first words out of Jesus' mouth. Nicodemus isn't even asking really a question, but Jesus gets to the heart of the issue. Just like the rich young ruler, he knew what he needed to say. And he says, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. In other words, Jesus is saying to Nicodemus, you know, it's not the organization on the outside that is so important to you. It's the reorganization on the inside. It's the reordering on the inside. It's the rebirth, the total rebirth that has to happen on the inside that is necessary. It's not the outside that counts. It's the inside. Very interesting. In 2013, in the G8 conference that was held in Ireland that year in a town called Enniskillen. Enniskillen is a town in Ireland, it had fallen on really hard times, and a lot of Main Street, had the businesses had closed down. Kind of looked like Bar Harbor in the winter, or Southwest Harbor in the winter. The townspeople were ashamed 
that these great world leaders were coming and were going to parade down the center of town. They were ashamed at the state of the town, how the town would look. And so, you know what they did? They got out pictures of when their businesses were flourishing and they blew them up and they put them in the storefronts. So that when the, when the leaders went through and kind of glanced left and right, they would at least see the facade of success. They would see what looked like a thriving business. And that's exactly what Jesus is identifying in Nicodemus. Notice when, when Nicodemus comes to him, he doesn't talk at all about the law. I mean, that's what Nicodemus was there for. Okay, here's this great rabbi. We've heard his teachings. He's even, even doing miracles. I'm going to go and we're going to talk about the law. This is going to be great because that's what they cherish. They would sit around for hours and just talk about the law, the intricacies of the law. How can we do the law? He doesn't even engage Nicodemus in the religious, religio-philosophic question of the day. How many angels can dance upon the head of a pin? That's kind of where the Pharisees and the Sadducees were. Let's just talk about those kinds of minutiae. He doesn't even talk about the Sabbath and all the laws around the Sabbath. No, Jesus goes right for the heart, doesn't he? Salvation is about spiritual birth, Nicodemus. Salvation requires rebirth, water and spirit, Nicodemus. Spirit, Nicodemus, gives birth to spirit. In other words, gaining entrance into the kingdom of God is spiritually accomplished, Nicodemus, not physically accomplished, not flesh, because flesh gives birth to flesh, he says. Not through the law, not through what they do. Because all you're doing, Nicodemus, is putting up fake storefronts. You look awesome on the outside, Nicodemus. But what about the inside? Is there substance behind it? Or is it like that small Irish town with those big pictures in the windows, dust and cobwebs? Is it a whitewashed tomb, as Jesus says later? And this floored Nicodemus. If you look at his reaction in verse 9, after Jesus says these things, he says, how can this be? He is lost. He's not even in waters that he can swim in. Just like Neo, that character in The Matrix, he is just, if you know the movie, he's lost for the first part of that movie. What do you mean this is fake? What do you mean? All that I know is, is, is ripped out from under me? How can this be? He was just told by Jesus that he is not in the kingdom of God. Imagine hearing that. There are many people who go to church in this country every Sunday, Sunday in and Sunday out, that need to hear this message. One of the things that saddens my heart most, that grieves me most, is when I see fake storefronts. Now, I'm not the perfect judge here, and I'm not claiming I am. 
But modern Pharisaism is not uncommon, guys. This is not something that's back there. It lives and thrives in our churches today. People who try their hardest, try their hardest to look good on the outside. Because that's, that's what's really important, is what people see when they look at me on the outside. And they try and hold it together. Kerry Newhoff, in his blog, gives the top ten reasons, top ten things modern Pharisees say. I don't have time to go into all of them, but I want to share just three of them with you. How do you know if you're a modern Pharisee? Well, the first thing a modern Pharisee says in his heart is, I follow the rules. Now, a modern Pharisee doesn't come out and say this, but it comes out in different ways. And here's a very common way it comes out. Is when you see another person not following the rules. What do you say? If only they would do things God's way, they wouldn't be in this mess. I've got to tell you, my, that's my heart. Many times when people come in from the community asking for help, and I hear their story, you know what my Pharisaic heart says? If you'd only do life the way God tells you to, you wouldn't be in this mess. And that gives evidence to me that I'm a modern Pharisee. What we have to keep before us always, guys, is that following the rules did not get us into the kingdom of God. No, we got into the kingdom of God through the mercy of Christ while we were yet sinners. Does that strike a note with you? Following the rules does not keep you in the love of God any more than you got into the love of God by keeping the rules. Secondly, a modern Pharisee, when asked if they're a Christian, responds this way. Yep, I am. A modern-day Pharisee, when asked if they're a Christian, says, yep, I am. Now, this doesn't mean that you shouldn't be sure of your salvation. That's not what I'm saying here. If you trust in Christ's work instead of yours, you are saved. But as Tim Keller says, underneath this statement is often the pernicious idea that they have somehow earned favor with God by their obedience and faithfulness. Behind that statement is that bravado. True Christians, when asked if they've entered the kingdom of God, you know what they sound like? They say, yes, can you believe it? They say, yeah, can, can you believe that I am one of God's children? They say things like, I don't know why he picked me. See, a true Christian realizes the grace and doesn't presume on the mercy. Realizes that I am screwed up and he still loves me. I don't know how that is true. Lastly, modern Pharisees say, sure, I have a few issues, but that's between me and God. 
Sure, I have a few issues, but that's between me and God. If you look at verses 19, 20, and 21, you see this right there. Jesus is talking to a Pharisee, and he says this. You have to remember the context. He's talking to a Pharisee. He says, this is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men love darkness instead of light because their deeds are evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. For whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly what he has done has been done through Christ. A true Christian lives in the light. A true Christian is not so concerned about their storefronts, guys. A true Christian is willing to be open and vulnerable and transparent and honest about who they are. Maybe progressively, maybe slowly, as the Spirit works on you. But they're willing to take down those pictures and say, this is really me. True Christians live in the light. And they take seriously confession and transparency. They take that seriously. And not just between them and God. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins one to another. It's vertical and horizontal, guys. You know you've got the vertical when it starts happening horizontally. That's the basic idea behind Scripture. (laughs) You know it's true this vertically when this starts happening. You know you love God when you start loving others. You know you care about your relationship with God when you care about the relationships you have with others. Modern day Pharisees do not do this. They draw attention to their fake storefronts. That's where their identity is. And we have really been duped, guys, in modern evangelicalism. We've really been duped into thinking that when we gather together, when we come here, that's when we put up the storefronts. That's when we really need to put up the storefronts. You know what really gathering should look like for us? A really bad AA meeting. It really should. This is who I am. Blake, this is who I am. This is who I am. It should really look like that because the storefronts are gone. Because your identity isn't in that picture. Your identity is who God says you are, which is his son or daughter. You're a prince, a princess. That's who you really are. So... Jesus challenges Nicodemus and through Nicodemus our own religiosity. But secondly, this text tells us that Nicodemus was also a scholar. If you look at verse 10, Jesus claims himself. He says, you are Israel's teacher. 
and you don't understand these things. He calls him Israel's teacher. Some commentators think that Nicodemus was one of the great teachers in Israel. Jesus is actually saying, you are one of the teachers of Israel. Everybody knows. But whatever it means, at the very least, it means that Nicodemus was a scholar of the scriptures. He knew the word of God. He knew the Bible. He could quote it. He could teach it. And throughout the narrative, Jesus tears apart what he thinks he knows. He challenges his knowledge. Nicodemus thinks he knows all about Judaism. He thinks he knows all about the law. He thinks he knows what it is to be saved. And Jesus literally brings him to his intellectual knees in verses 5 through 8. You must be born again. Spirit gives birth to spirit. Wind blows where it will. Do you know what Nicodemus is telling? I mean, Jesus is telling Nicodemus. He's saying, Nicodemus, you can't control your own salvation through what you do. And which Nicodemus says, my, my world just exploded. How can this be? You see, Nicodemus thought he knew. But you can see through Jesus' rhetorical questions throughout the text that he doesn't even know the basics. If you look at verse 10, he calls him Israel's teacher, and you don't understand these things. In verse 12, he challenges Nicodemus and says, I spoke of you of earthly things, and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? Even though Nicodemus was this great teacher, he didn't know. He didn't know Salvation 101. I even hear some frustration in Jesus' voice in verse 10. And so, what Jesus does is he says, okay, here's this great Old Testament scholar. Let me give you Salvation 101 from the Old Testament. Let me give you what salvation looks like from the Old Testament. And he quotes from Numbers 21. I'd I'd encourage you to turn there. Numbers 21. It's on page 242 in the Pew Bible. This is when Israel is in the wilderness and they're traveling from Mount Hor along the route to the Red Sea. Numbers 21, starting in verse 4. And it says, To go around Edom, but the people grew impatient on the way. They spoke against God and against Moses and said, Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the desert? There's no bread. There's no water. And we detest this miserable food. They're talking about the manna. Then the Lord sent venomous snakes among them. They bit the people and many Israelites died. The people came to Moses and said, We sinned when we spoke against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he will take away the snakes from us. So Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said to Moses, and here's the interesting thing, Take a snake... And put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it on a pole. Then he went to anyone who was bitten by the snake. And when anyone that was bitten by the snake looked at the bronze snake, he lived. 
what Jesus has just brought to Nicodemus's mind is redemptive history distilled down into those five verses. This is redemptive history, guys. This is the gospel. Sin, judgment, provision, response. Let me repeat that. Here's the gospel. Sin, judgment, provision, response. The people sinned. They spoke against God. They rejected what God had given. They sinned. God judged them. He sent snakes. People died. God's provision. He gave away out of death. Just look at the snake. Here's the snake. And the response is, just look. Just look. That's it. Just look. Sin, judgment, provision, response. There's a lot we could talk about here, but I think what Jesus wants to draw Nicodemus' attention to is the response. The response in Numbers 21 is not work, do. It's just look. Just look. Simply look. Just as it did not depend on how much these people knew that saved them or what they did, so it is with Christ. That's the beauty of the gospel. All the Israelites had to do was trust what God said and look at the snake. Simple faith. Knowledge is a wonderful thing. Knowledge is wonderful. It allows us to explore and push boundaries. Knowledge begets knowledge. It it encourages us to think more, a desire to know more. Knowledge isn't bad. Isaiah 1.18 says... God himself says, come, let us reason together. Come, knowledge is not bad. But it's dangerous too. In his letter to the Corinthians, the first letter Paul writes in chapter 8, knowledge puffs up, knowledge gives you pride. Knowledge can sometimes lead to pride, which can keep us from Christ. That's what's happened in the last couple hundred years in the age of the Enlightenment, living after the Enlightenment. We've gained more and more knowledge about science and physics and anatomy and weather patterns. The knowledge makes things explainable. And it can also distance us from God. It can cause us to doubt God, to explain God away. Which is a dangerous thing. As the story goes, there was a philosopher, a scientist, and a simple man, none of whom could swim, that were trapped in a cove with the tide coming in. They decided to split up and try and find their way up. The rescuers lowered a rope with a safety harness to each of them. The philosopher looked at the harness and said, Ah, it looks like a rope, but I could be mistaken. It could be a wishful thinking or an illusion. So he didn't attach himself and he died. The scientist said, ah, this is an 8 millimeter polyester rope with a breaking strain of 2,800 kilograms. 
It conforms to the MR 10-81 standard and then proceeded to give an exhaustive and entirely correct analysis of the composition of the rope. But he didn't attach himself and he died. The simple man said, ah, could be a rope or a python's tail, but I don't care. And he grabbed hold of the rope and was saved. Silly story, but think about it for a second. Jesus chose to tell Nicodemus an Old Testament story about absolute simple faith. Just look. Don't do anything. Just look. Not about how much you know, but about simple trust, simple faith. Look and be saved. Guys, that's the gospel. It's that simple. Look and be saved. Trust that God did so love the world that he gave his only son. And that whoever believes in him, whoever puts their faith in him, whoever trusts him, whoever looks to Christ for their salvation will live and not die. Simple faith. But our knowledge, it even gets messed up when we think that way. We ask in our great age of reason, how much faith do I need? Don't we? How much do we need? I love what Kent Hughes says here. He admonishes us all when we think that way. He says, don't look at your look, look at Christ. We have a tendency to look at our look, don't we? How much do I need that will save me? Salvation, the Bible says, is accomplished with a mustard seed of faith. Now, we don't get that as much. It's not as real to us as it is to the agricultural society. But I have here a little vial of saffron. Saffron is a spice. And a little string of saffron looks like this. Just a little teeny strand of saffron. If you take this teeny strand of saffron and you crush it up and you mix it in with rice and fish and make the Spanish dish paella, you can make enough to season and color enough paella to feed a dozen people with that teeny bit of spice. Guys, that's what faith is like. It doesn't take a lot. It just takes a little teeny bit. We tend to say, well, how much? This much to save you. This much is the difference between looking to Christ and spending an eternity without Christ. That's all you need, guys. A glance a glance of faith and you're with him forever. Don't look at your look. Look at Christ and be saved. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for your word. And Spirit, I ask that you apply it to our lives and hearts perfectly as we know you will. 
in Jesus' name. Amen.